Hi, I'm Madhvi Romani. And I'm Rena Grobe. And this is Misinformed, the podcast for lazy but smart people. Every week, we'll be discussing a new topic or trend, so you can stay informed the easy way. Serena, what are we talking about this week? This week, I read an article, actually I read an article out loud to you, that I think nothing has made me this angry in a while. This weird, a lot of stuff makes you angry all the time. This is true. But I read this article and was infuriated right away. I remember asking you, like, can I just post fuck this person on our Instagram with absolutely no context? I was so mad. So (laughs) there was an article released in the Washington Post on the 15th of August. And the title of the article is A Luxury Magazine's Photo Hides Relics Cambodia Says Could Be Stolen. So, to just summarize really quickly what happened is, Architectural Digest, which, you know, we all know what it is, or maybe we don't know, but it's a glossy magazine that features fancy homes. What's interesting, actually, is that this specific article is from 2021, so this is outrage that's coming a little bit late. So the original article was actually posted in January 2021, and I think that the updated photos or the real photos were just released, and that's why this has become an issue now. So basically, Architectural Digest profiled a remodeled house that was remodeled for $42 million, which is a ridiculous amount, in San Francisco, which has like a huge population of homeless people and, you know, social inequality and economic inequality and all this stuff. So anyway... We're in a $42 million house. No, refurbished. Refurbished, yes. And it belongs to lawyer and author Sloane Lindman Barnett and her husband, Roger Barnett, who is an executive at a nutrition supplement company. Also, just to say, her father is a billionaire. Yes. Her parents are both billionaires. Frida and her father has passed away, but he was George Lindemann. So... Pictures of their homes were featured in Architectural Digest, and then recently, photos appeared this July 2022 on Peter Marino's website, who I believe is the photographer who photographed the shoot, and people noticed a difference between the photos that appeared in Architectural Digest and the photos that appeared on the photographer's website, mainly that... There were some relics, some statues, photoshopped out of the Architectural Digest piece. Now, it should be said that this family is notorious for owning stolen art. Their parents also had their home featured in 2008. And in the article, Architectural Digest described them as having one of the greatest collections of Southeast Asian arts in private hands, where... The word in private hands automatically makes me want to puke because it's such code for stolen art from rich white people. And yes, their Palm Beach home was crowded with art stolen from Cambodia, which the government says was looted from Cambodia. And two of the items that appeared in her parents' house match artifacts that rank amongst the country's 10 most important stolen relics. 
So, I mean, it just sounds like a really great family. And literally, I was filled with such rage. This has been four minutes of me being angry and ragey at this stupid family that seemed to show no remorse about having stolen art. And the worst bit is they seem to be fully aware of it because they intentionally had it photoshopped out. What's also interesting is Architectural Digest, the magazine, photoshopped them out without doing any, like, due diligence on like, hey, why? And is this stolen? Or are they participating in basically a cover-up of a crime? And then this week, on a similar note, the Met in New York, Cambodia, saying there's a reformed uh, looter from Cambodia who has identified a bunch of objects in the Met and said he looted them and given them details and stuff. And so the Cambodian government is working with the Justice Department. The Met is not like cooperating on some things. And that article in the New York Times is interesting because there was a quote by, I think, somebody in Germany, a curator, who just said, in those times, you know, when they acquired all of these things from 1992 onwards, I guess, they didn't really ask about things like provenance. Like, so was this got in the right way and all of this kind of stuff? And a lot of that stuff like Cambodia, and this is the rabbit hole that Rena and I just fell down this week, which is the history of Cambodia, which if you do not know it, like for us, we were both saying, why did we not learn all of this in school? It's shocking. We'll go into that a little bit later. But because of the history of Cambodia, and there was a civil war, and then there was the Khmer Rouge, or actually they pronounce it Khmer Rouge, even though in the West we say Khmer. So there was all this history of like, maybe those artifacts even wouldn't have been preserved had they not come out of the country or maybe some farmers or some people made their living by having to do this to feed their families because there was a very big genocide happening in Cambodia and stuff like that so in all this chaos basically a lot of Cambodia's riches from the Angkor Empire from the 9th to the 15th century went missing and for now I guess people are going back to Cambodia to look at those temples which have mostly been looted because there is still not only a cultural significance and a spiritual significance, but also actually an economic significance. So like, where should those artifacts be? People are paying money to go into the Met to see them, but they're stolen. and Maybe they should be given back. Yeah, the um, Architectural Digest, though, that douchey couple. <coughs> Sorry, that's the only sound I can make. That's fine. It doesn't go above one decibel. Um, <laughs> it can stay in. It's such a weird thing to me. I actually like Architectural Digest. I like looking at it. I really like pretty things and looking at design. It beats me that people who apparently have everything, who are billionaires, including that have stolen art in their homes, would think, oh, now I need to like put this all in a magazine for everyone to see. I just, I find that incredibly strange and an impulse. Interesting. I mean, for me, it makes perfect sense. Oh, it does? Yeah, 100%. We were just watching Opulence by ContraPoints, who is brilliant and amazing, and we stand. And she says, what is the point of being rich if nobody is poor, right? You need a witness to your rich. And for me, things like Architectural Digest are the epitome of other people witnessing your wealth. Because I like watching videos about design, specifically homes. Like, I legitimately enjoy them. 
But it does strike me as odd that, I mean, there are a few niche YouTube channels like Never Too Small and The Local Project that focus on people using small space in creative ways. But even then, it's always focused on people who have money, right? So Mm -hmm. like having money and good taste kind of are synonymous. They never feature homes that are from a lower class family that has made clever, inventive ways to make their home aesthetically pleasing because that's not good taste. Mm. We live in a society where good taste is defined by a certain subgroup of people. So things like Architectural Digest, YouTube channels of this sort are, it's not necessarily even like a flex of what you have because I do agree with Natalie from ContraPoints here that there are two different things. There's having money and flexing your money and then there's having good taste which is the point that she tries to make she says you know if you have money and you flaunt it that's what things like mtv cribs are for right it's like people who don't necessarily have taste but who have a lot of monies and we see their ostentatious homes and then there's things like architectural digest which is thought of people with good taste flaunting their homes but it's still all about showing other people you have something they don't you need them to bear witness to your money because if you don't have a witness then do you really have money she goes on to elaborate a little bit more about talking about art museums where you can pretend that you can go you go to the art museum just for the sake of going to see the art but in reality the context of going to see a museum is someone has made the choice and has defined what is good art and then has said okay this is good taste this is good art So the context in which you are visiting the museum is to sort of confirm that you yourself also have good taste because you agree with the person who has set the bar for what is good taste. It's the same thing as Architectural Digest, right? We watch these videos and say, oh, this is a beautiful home. Whether we aspire to have that home, whether we are jealous, you're still looking at a really rich person's house and saying, ah, yes, this is good taste. Thus, I also have good taste. Thus, I am part of this experience because my good taste aligns with them. Yeah, they're cultured people and therefore you're cultured. What's fascinating about this is in my home when somebody says, oh, we won the football, my mother always says, did you personally pay and win the football? And it's like, actually, no. And I feel like that's a bit like what happens in Architectural Digest because those people just have money to buy or to employ people who have taste curators and the collectors and the the people who have art galleries for example decide what goes into the gallery and then the people who buy the art are already buying from a curated idea of what good taste is so it's not actually their good taste it's just that they have the money to spend on people who set taste which are the secondary people this is true but i think in a way they do set what is good taste in the sense of who they select to be their designers yeah if they you know if they decided okay we're going to select a designer who everything is leopard print then they would be using their influence to decide this is good taste yes yeah i mean essentially they're borrowing someone else's taste and reaffirming this is good Yeah, it's influence over taste. It's influence over taste, absolutely. And sorry, not to like loop back to this Cambodia thing, but the one thing that boggles my mind is that they clearly must know it's not right or good for them to have it, otherwise they wouldn't have had it photoshopped out. So the complete lack of a moral compass there is mind-boggling to me. It's interesting, isn't it? Because it's seen as good in our society to have all those artifacts and stuff, 
but morality does not factor into whether you're a person to be looked up to or not. It's just whether you have the wealth to buy those things, but not whether you have the moral compass to decide whether you should have those things or not, or to lie or to have stolen things and to cover things up. That's not really a problem in our society. That's interesting, because before, I guess, maybe the people you looked up to always had to have some sense of like godliness and righteousness in them, even if they didn't, like that used to be a value. And now it's just like, yeah, but they've got money, so it's fine. I think it's because we've entered a phase, I mean, and I don't know whether or not this is like necessarily when this started, but I think we live in a phase where people are not worshipping a god anymore necessarily. And I mean, maybe in the sense I'm speaking mostly for like Western European United States society, but you're kind of worshipping capitalism or money. That's become what you want. And these pieces that used to have a spiritual meaning or something have just ended up as things that we consume and have and possess. Yeah, because you can buy a shiny object for your home, but you can't buy morals, right? That's something that takes time. You have to cultivate or... I mean, I think it's obvious thou shalt not steal. Yes. (laughs) Apparently it's not obvious though, huh? Well, they know it. It's just like, yeah, they just don't care. I think, like, it's not it's not something you have to learn. Thou shalt not kill. Thou shalt not steal. In every single basis of our entire civilization, these are, like, things that are just basic rules. It's not like, what is the moral, you know... Like, you were asking a question about a singer the other day, which I was like, oh, I don't know. Oh, yeah. So, I actually don't remember how I got onto this. Just the way you do things at two in the morning... I was reading about King Princess, who I absolutely love and adore. And somehow I went down this rabbit hole, and it turns out King Princess's family are the founders, and I don't know if they're still the owners, but they were the founders of Macy's, and her grandparents or her great-grandparents died on the Titanic, and they used to be slave owners who were on the side of the Confederates. And so she obviously comes from this incredibly wealthy, privileged family, and it made me feel super weird about liking her music, because... Even if she herself is a good person and if she's a leftist person now or, you know, whatever, her career, whether directly or indirectly, is built off of the wealth of her family having owned slaves. And I just don't know what to do with that because it's not her fault, but it is her responsibility. Yeah, I think you've got a point there because I think the responsibility to address the past is a really important one. Yeah. And to acknowledge and reckon with it also. And if you're a public figure, to also do that publicly. I do understand that an artist is just an artist. And sometimes you just want to make art. But this is quite a a legacy, right? And it depends on the... It depends on how heavy that burden is. Yeah, but the thing is, like, yeah, she's completely talented. Like, she's talented. She makes amazing music. She is very good at what she does. But she got to where she is even if her family isn't in the entertainment industry, through connections and through money. So even if nothing from her family's past has directly influenced her artistry, it still has. And if I buy her music, if I go to her concert, I'm contributing to... The inequality. Yeah. I mean, I would say, if I were her... (laughs) If I were her... we can play this game and it's so easy to play that game right 
that even privately you would probably want to give back some of that money or enable other artists who are like black artists, for example, who your family have profited off, say, slavery, for example, to kind of give back these reparations. But this actually does bring us back to Cambodia because Rina and I got obsessed with the history of Cambodia, which we knew about the Khmer Rouge a little bit. And then we watched this film called S21, The Khmer Rouge Killing Machine. And S21 stands for Security 21, which was a very famous prison. Yeah, prison seems like too light of a word. It was a torture chamber. It was a concentration camp. Concentration camp. House of horribleness, of like, just horrors beyond imagine. And many, many thousands of people, I think maybe 20,000 people, if I remember correctly, were killed there. Only a few, like a dozen made it out, not less than a dozen, not many, and including children and babies and everyone was, were killed there and tortured there. And it, it, when you went there, you could smell the stench of human corpses and human flesh rotting. And in this film, they show former prison guards and a couple of former inmates who go back to this location, this building of horrors, and they try and reckon with the past and what happened there. And so the guards are kind of reenacting what they did. And the prisoners are asking, like looking at the records and going through the cases and trying to like ask the guards what they were thinking. And what's interesting about the Khmer Rouge is that there were many perpetrators of terrible crimes like these guards who killed people, who tortured people who raped people, who killed babies, who did horrible things. And then there were the inmates who mostly died. But nobody was really prosecuted for the massive genocide that this was part of. This genocide killed 1.7 million people out of a population of 7 million. So a quarter of the entire, more than a quarter of the entire population of Cambodians. And what's interesting about this is they say the reason why nobody was brought to justice was, well, the guards themselves were part of the system, right? They were also like victims because if they didn't do what their superiors told them to do or whatever, they would also just get totally killed because they were also victims. And a lot of them were children who were taken away from their parents and then indoctrinated. And then they were brought in to control the prisoners and do all this stuff. So they were also victims. And this was the argument I think everyone should watch this film, but when we were watching this, I was screaming at the TV like, no, I don't think that's right. Like, I think you have a responsibility, even if you're in a system. And the same can be said for capitalism, right? Like, mm -hmm. we're in a system and we're all perpetrating things to different degrees all the time, so not murdering babies, maybe. Yeah, and how much of that where's the line and where's our moral line? And I think all of it fits into the same thing, like, from your pop star to the architectural digest to this like what is everyone's individual moral responsibility and why the fuck was nobody brought to justice in Cambodia I 100% actually absolutely agree with you on this because when you look at a lot of the arguments that was used by people who worked in concentration camps in Germany, a lot of the argumentation was, well, I was just following orders, I was just following orders. But surely these people in the Khmer Rouge were also just following orders. Like, it's the same line of argumentation. Yeah, word. that was what Hannah Arndt wrote in The Banality of Evil, was she was really saying, 
that Eichmann's defense was, I was just doing my job. And then she goes out to point out that actually everyone in Europe enabled this to happen because they were just following orders and just doing their job. I mean, in a way, I do think that the prison guards in the Khmer Rouge were less to blame than the prison guards in Nazi Germany because I'm sure there were ramifications if you were a prison guard in Nazi Germany and didn't do your job, but the prison guards in Khmer Rouge were, some of them abducted as children and indoctrinated and brainwashed, and then, like, there was the same threat of violence to them that happened to the prisoners if they did not do their jobs. At the same time, still, when you watch this documentary, I just, like, it's so chilling because they repeat what they did. They stand in the same places where they did what they did and they describe it with such details. And you're just, I don't know, it makes you feel kind of sick because you're like, how is there no remorse being shown? It's such an interesting method of making a documentary to make them repeat their actions. And yeah, a lot of those guards... I mean, they say they feel sorry or that they wake up in the night and they think about those people and they made a mistake. But they truly believe that at the time. And I think you can see that they don't have as much real pain as the prisoners do who are just living it every single moment, this terrible trauma. And I think the guards are also obviously traumatized because they were made to do this. But I think some things, for me, the moral line is very clear. The word unnatural kept on coming to my mind. Like... When you're told to take a baby out to the back and just kill it and throw it away, there must be, or maybe this is a question, is there not a human instinct that prevents you from doing that naturally? Because I feel like there's a lot of things that naturally we would do, so we can't sit here and say if we were in the same situation we absolutely wouldn't be a guard because maybe we would because there's a survival instinct and maybe we would. We do things that are morally questionable all the time because of our selfishness, because of our self-preservation, because we want to be in this group, not in another group, because our beliefs are false, because we have wrong ideas, because other people indoctrinate us, whatever it is. But then I just, you just draw the line at some things. I think we should maybe go into a little bit of the history of the Khmer Rouge and how this all happened. Mm -hmm. So before we dive into that, just a little bit of context on this prison that we've mentioned. This prison is where enemies of the state were taken. They were essentially tortured until they confessed to crimes, and once they had confessed, they were killed. If they were tortured and didn't confess, they were nurtured back to, like, just about living, I guess. And then so they could continue to be tortured, and they were tortured and tortured until they confessed to something and then just killed. So essentially, they were brought to this camp to be killed. And so when we say enemy of the state, these were just normal people who were just living in villages, doing nothing. They were just rounded up one day and brought to this prison because there was an idea that there was an enemy within and that they had to get rid of these bad elements in order to make a new society which was based on the agricultural model of communism, which was dreamt up by the dictator Pol Pot, who we will go into in a bit. But yes, so these people, they just knew nothing. They were just normal people. They were brought there. And because the guards had to get confessions out of them, and because the torture was used, they just confessed to anything. Like they read some of them. And they were like, oh, I used too much fabric in the factory. Sometimes I broke needles. It was an act of sabotage. 
or things like that. They just made up because they were just at such a loss to even confess to anything because their lives were so simple. That's the kind of confession that they made. And then that kind of confession got them executed after being tortured. And a lot of them even couldn't write. So the guards wrote a lot of the things and they were convinced because of this paranoia that either the KGB or the CIA or the Vietnamese were kind of infiltrating these people and they were being used as spies or whatever. So there were people who didn't even know who the KGB were, who couldn't read or write, but because the guards were torturing them said, oh, is it the KGB? They just said yes. And then they kind of wrote a sort of confession or the guard wrote it for them and then they were killed. And so these were just normal people. Farmers who were literally like abducted. And they said that they were like, what, blindfolded, their hands were handcuffed. It just, honestly, everyone should watch this documentary because I feel like this is a horror that no one talks about. And when I was a kid, we learned about the Holocaust in detail. And we had to go visit concentration camps. And this felt worse. Again, you can't put human suffering on a scale and you can't compare suffering. But this was, this was something else. It really is. Uh, the film is on YouTube free and we will link it in our newsletter, which you can subscribe to on Substack. So, a brief history of Cambodia. <sighs> All right, yeah, yeah. here we go, huh? So, Cambodia. Fun fact, not a lot of people know this, Cambodia used to be one of the largest empires. The Khmer Empire, which flourished for over 600 years. Yes, it used to have Thailand, Laos, parts of Vietnam. It was massive. And then, shit fell apart. In the 15th century, Cambodia experienced a decline of power while its neighbors, Vietnam and Thailand, grew stronger. And then... In 1863, Cambodia became a protectorate of France and then later became a part of French Indochina. After a period of Japanese occupation during the Second World War, Cambodia gained independence from France in 1953. Despite Cambodia's neutrality, the Vietnam War extended into the country, and we will talk a little bit more about that a little bit later. A 1970 coup installed the U.S.-aligned Khmer Republic until being overthrown by the Khmer Rouge in 1975. The Khmer Rouge, which is primarily what we will be focusing on, ruled the country and carried out the Cambodian genocide from 1975 until 1979 when they were ousted in the Cambodian-Vietnam War. The Vietnam occupied People's Republic of Kampuchea became the de facto government with the attempt to rebuild the country after the genocide in 1991 the Paris Peace Accords formally ended the war with Vietnam and Cambodia was briefly governed by the United Nations missions from 1992 to 1993 the UN withdrew after holding elections in which about 90% of the registered voters cast ballots in 1997 there was a coup and powers consolidated under Prime Minister Hun Sen and the Cambodia's People Party, who remain in power until today. So basically the same people, more or less, are still in power. They've been in power since 1997 or 1998 until today. And those people also, like the Prime Minister, used to be in the Khmer Rouge. Yep. And there are some fun facts. Oh my god, it's honestly the... History of Cambodia is a minefield, much like Cambodia itself, which is still riddled with mines. Yeah, and because it's riddled with mines, it actually has the highest number of amputees in the world. Cambodia is also, interestingly, the most bombed country 
ever in history. Which is weird when you think about World War II in Europe. Germany, for example, they just found a bomb here the other day in Oskaritz. They're still finding them. And it also includes Japan, Nagasaki, and Hiroshima. So Cambodia was bombed more than that. It was constantly getting bombed by the Americans because of the Vietnam War. If you're wondering how is Cambodia involved in the Vietnam War, there were troops of the Viet Cong hiding out in Cambodia. So in order to target them, Nixon started a campaign called Project Breakfast, in which they essentially bombed the fuck out of Cambodia, killing innocent civilians. He didn't get approval of the Senate. Even the people who were flying the mission didn't know until last minute where they were going. And so out of nowhere, these like B-52s would appear and bomb the fuck out of like rural Cambodian areas. Thousands of civilians died. And these campaigns were so successful that he then ran projects lunch, project snack, project dinner, project dessert, which all followed the same pattern. And this was part of Nixon's madman theory of basically, if your opponent thinks you're a madman and doesn't know what you're going to do next, you can outsmart them. And you know what this reminded me of? Israel's bombing of Palestine, because they say that they're, oh, they're targeting people from Hamas, but really they're just killing innocent civilians, which is the same thing that the Americans were doing to Cambodia. They said that they were targeting specific political prisoners and instead just killed a bunch of innocent civilians. So, good job, Nixon. Yeah, thousands died because of the shrapnel and because of these bombs. And it was also confusing for people who were, like, from rural villages at that point. A lot of people, they hadn't even ridden an automobile, you know what I mean? And then all of a sudden they see these, you know, B-52s flying out of the sky and just dropping fire. It's really scary as well. So... Cambodia was part of Indochina, and there was a growing sort of independence movement. Part of this movement was Pol Pot, who... Pol Pot is a stage name, if you will. Much, I guess most dictators had a stage name, right? Hitler had one, Stalin had one. They didn't go by their real names. Was Hitler not Hitler's real name? No, it's uh, Schittelgruber, Adolf Schittelgruber. And Stalin? Stalin had some complicated Georgian name. Hmm. Also, when you say stage name, there's actually an English tenor called Paul Potts. It's <laughs> not that Paul Potts. Yeah, it's Paul Pot. He's it's a Paul single Pot. He's not many Pots. And it's, it's just Paul. Paul. P-O-L. Yeah, Paul Pot. So, Paul Pot, which is a pseudonym for Salad Star. I prefer the term stage name, but continue. <laughs> he actually came from quite a wealthy family, even though it was a rural family, it was a wealthy family. He went to Paris to study... He got in with the Marxists there, then he came back, and he wanted to make a Marxist government basically on rice farming. Agriculture was his main thing, because his theory was if everyone had enough to eat and farmed, then that would make the nation strong and would be good for defense. Anyway, that was his brand of communism. And what's kind of funny about him, you said stage name, but like he was very elusive nobody really knew much about him even in 1975 when basically he came to power as the controller he came to power in a kind of weird alliance with the former prince who was supported by the americans but really you know the khmer rouge and paul pot were in charge so we have a strange situation where it's actually a communist party in charge 
But the leader that has a reputation and some love from the people, the representative leader is a prince. So I just find that weird combination between like, oh, we're going to go fully communist, but the person who looks like who's in charge of this new government is actually a prince. But anyway, when they came to power, they installed him as a kind of puppet head. And then they proceeded to do some wacko things. The first thing they did was they wanted to evacuate completely Phnom Penh, the main city, because they wanted to get everyone out into the rural areas. They did not care about if you were in a hospital, if you had enough food. People were like in their beds connected to IVs. They were just like being pushed out. Women were giving birth on the street. Old people were dying. Everyone had to leave. They had to walk out. And so all these people were just walking out into the countryside. And then the next part of the plan was to make them all farm, which of course didn't make any sense because nobody had experience from the cities. Like a lot of people didn't have experience in farming. All of these villages and these rural areas became basically forced labor camps for people to work from morning to evening in and who were basically dying also of starvation while they were doing this they also got rid of money completely they literally like just set the the central bank on fire because they had this like bartering system they also got rid of and when i say got rid of like executed killed all the middle class so all of the engineers all of the teachers anyone in the military, which means there was no one left to run the country. There was just all these people who had been displaced, who had nothing. And then they were trying to collectivize everything. And they went so far with collectivization that they even collectivized food, for example. You weren't allowed to cook your meals anymore. All anyone had was their own spoon. And then like you couldn't marry without permission. And there were weird matches, so like old men marrying young girls and stuff because the state ha- had this control. And then children were separated from their parents to go away and be indoctrinated then they came back and basically spied on their parents and they were learned to distrust their parents so it was like a massive breakdown of the entire social fabric of Cambodia took place and during this time of course S21 started operating and people had to confess their crimes and then you had this problem of everyone was trying to like fill their quotas and stuff so then they lied on the paperwork they said oh we're producing more food than we are and so more food went into storehouses and then so the people who were growing the food actually starved there's actually a term that originates from this time called the killing field which is because people were killed and died on the fields or were you know taken from the fields they died of exhaustion yeah they died of exhaustion yeah at this time when we talk about the violence of what happened there's one story about a 10 year old who was dug up a sweet potato and started eating it and this was punishable because it was an act of individualism bear in mind everyone's starving so this child was taken to a barn with a bunch of other people also who had committed so-called crimes and then the whole barn was set on fire yeah so there were two young kids who were accused of passing along messages for the enemies and they were decapitated using palm leaves like sharp palm leaves children This whole dictatorship only took four years, but during this time, the whole country was overturned and turned into one big, massive prison with full control and paranoia and fear and terror and unspeakable, unspeakable horrors. And every single thing, like Buddhism was gotten rid of, it's an 80% Buddhist country, like there was no religion, all the religious people were gotten rid of. So whole fabric of the society that was there before was totally destroyed 
And I think we should add that even the 1.7 million is the number that is most often used. Some estimates put it at 2.5 million people were killed because people were often killed in such horrible ways, died of exhaustion, were buried in mass graves. There is no real way of concretely measuring the amount of people that were killed during this time. And then if you count also the people who died of starvation, the people who died along the path out of the cities, all of this stuff, I think it must be much more. So really like half the population must have gone in these terrible years during which Pol Pot was in charge. And then what he decided to do was attack Vietnam and take over basically Vietnam. So he had this ludicrous thing that he said, oh, if every Cambodian kills 10 Vietnamese, we can do it, which is just also wacko suggestion because it also means that you'll have no Cambodians left, but fine. And then they started attacking Vietnam. And at some point, Vietnam was just got annoyed. And then that's why Vietnam came and took Phnom Penh and installed a kind of democratic sort of puppet government thing, but way better than anything that I think that was happening in Cambodia at that time. And what's really funny is then Pol Pot went to the UN Security Council, New York, and, you know, said, hey, look, we're the rightful government, and Vietnam has just invaded us. And everyone in the UN, the US, all of Europe, everyone, was on his side. Only the USSR and one other country voted against this. And he was interviewed by journalists. He was supposed to be very charming. Everyone was fine with him. Eddie Izzard does a great skit about this in his show Dressed to Kill, where he talks about how the mistake that Hitler did was that they killed people next door. That after a couple of years, you know, the West won't stand for that. But if you kill your own people, they're chill. Yeah, and he killed a lot of his own people. And then he went back and he was still trying to, you know, take over again. At some point, the Khmer Rouge itself put him on trial. and But they gave him house arrest, which was totally chill too, because, I mean, house arrest was fine. And he died peacefully in his sleep, which is a great travesty of justice. And nobody has been brought to justice or been made to deal with the past in Cambodia. And hell, there's a lot of past. Yeah, and I mean... They're essentially in power again, right? Not as the Khmer Rouge, but many of the people that were in the government then are in the government now. And doing research about Cambodia, shit is fucked up. I was reading about cyber slaves in Cambodia, which, yeah, that's a thing. What's a cyber slave? So basically, Cambodia has a really high rate of human trafficking. The government of Cambodia does not fully meet the minimum standards for the elimination of trafficking and is not making any significant efforts to do so. This is from the 2020 Trafficking in Human Persons report. This is what really, really stuck with me. This is from the report July 2022. Cambodian men form the largest source of demand for for children exploited in sex trafficking. However, men from elsewhere in Asia, Australia, Europe, South Africa, and the United States travel to Cambodia to engage in child sex tourism, increasingly facilitated through social media contact. Thousands of urban children left behind by families migrating abroad for work are particularly vulnerable to sex trafficking and forced labor. The prevalence of child sex trafficking and child sex trafficking tourism reportedly declined in 2020 due to reduced international travel and pandemic-related quarantine requirements. However, NGOs and law enforcement officials report the pandemic 
increased incident of online child sexual exploitation in 2020, and incidents continue to increase throughout 2021. Vietnamese women and children, many of whom are victims of debt-based coercion, travel to Cambodia and are exploited in sex trafficking. NGOs report that criminal gangs transport some Vietnamese criminal victims through Cambodia before they are exploited in Thailand and Malaysia. The traffickers in Cambodia are most commonly family or community members or small networks of independent brokers. Some Cambodian orphanages purchase local children from economically disadvantaged families and subject them to malnutrition and unclean living conditions for the purpose of attracting and profiting from charitable donations. Some of these children are further at risk of sex trafficking and domestic servitude as a result of poor government oversight of adoption processes. So I know I mentioned cyber slavery before, but these two things kind of go hand in hand. Human trafficking is a massive problem in Cambodia. So one, you have the trafficking in children for things such as like people just don't have money, they sell their children. There are people who are trafficked in from abroad, from Vietnam, from Taiwan, from China. And this is where the cyber slaves ties into. Some of them are coerced into coming to Cambodia to work as forced laborers. So they're promised jobs and then they are literally shipped to Cambodia and they are brought into forced labor there. Now, the cyber slave is a new thing that has developed with the age of technology. I watched an Al Jazeera documentary about this, and people are essentially lied to about what kind of job they're going to be offered. Mostly people who are down on their luck, who are from low-income families, who have no other option, are brought to these compounds, usually tricked by being told that they're going to do a different job, and they are forced to scam people online. Now, they are guarded 24-7, they can't leave the compound, they are, for all intents and purposes, slaves. They aren't paid money. And these compounds are mostly owned by massive Chinese companies. And they use emails, but they also use dating apps to scam women in the West out of money. So, for example, one woman tells her story about how she met this guy on a dating app, and he told her he was from Cambodia, he was traveling in the US, and then the lockdown came, and now he's stuck here. And they would chat, and they would talk, and then he told her, you should invest in this Bitcoin company, once he had gained her trust. But the Bitcoin company didn't exist, it was fraud. So she poured $300,000 into this Bitcoin company, which was fake. I mean, she lost everything, there's no way she's ever getting that back. And these are the cyber slaves. Because they're just people caught in these compounds who have to do it. And they show videos of what happens to them if they don't work, if they misbehave, if they don't make enough money. It's very reminiscent of what happened in S21, right? The people are handcuffed mm. and beaten. And what's shocking is, is they film this. They film it and um, they were talking to a guy from an NGO who collects these videos and survival testimonies. And yeah, so like... Cyber slaves is a massive problem in Cambodia. Human trafficking is a massive problem in Cambodia. And it mostly results out of unstable government. The people are so poor, they often have no other choice. And just because they have such poor laws and other countries such as China have such a large grip on them that, you know, they can't stop these people from other places being trafficked in. And I think that when people think about sex tourism in this part of Asia, you mostly think about Thailand. But Children being sex trafficked is a massive problem in Cambodia. And, you know, people from Australia, Europe, South Africa, and the United States, I mean, it also says Asia, but 
that's mostly white men from Western countries going to Cambodia to engage in sexual acts with kids. I think that's what stuck out about Cambodia is we hear about Vietnam, we started the Vietnam War, we know about Thailand, sex tourism. But Cambodia, it's the most bomb country in the world. And it has this terrible history. It's got many problems right now. And nobody's talking about it. Just right now, we fell into this by looking at, you know, this looting thing that's come up with the Met and this stupid billionaire couple. But apart from that, the world's eyes are not really on it. And it seems like what a terrible situation for the poor people of Cambodia. And even this story, right? Like this has taken like a year to come out with this ridiculous billionaire couple. And even then, like there's not as large as a cry out as there should be. Mainly because it's very obvious that this couple know that this is looted and stolen art and that they have no plans to give it back and that they clearly feel no remorse. And it's like, has Cambodia not suffered enough? Yes, they've suffered enough, but like it doesn't make sense for the countries in the West to pursue this because they're like, it's a waste of money, it's not a crime that affects us necessarily. And then also Cambodia is not a player in the international scene that is important to anyone. So... That's that. It's interesting that Vietnam actually, if you look at it, liberated Cambodia. Yeah. But nobody looks at it like that. Nobody's like, oh, Vietnam, the great liberator. But no, it's funny how when you look at these things. The great liberator is the United States. Always, yes. Always, of course. So on that note, we hope you've learned a little bit more about Cambodia. But here are three things you can do this week to be even more informed. Number one, watch the free film on YouTube. We will link to it in our newsletter. It is called S21, The Khmer Rouge Killing Machine, if you do want to Google it. Thing two, interrogate all of your actions under a moral light. Don't buy from Shine Sheehan, still unsure how you say that company's name. Think about where you buy things. Everything is connected and we have to think about what we do because it matters and the world is such a horrible place and even though we can't you know fix the world on our own together we can and thing three can we please stop fetishizing wealth and making it a thing that we all admire and aspire to and want to participate in thank you for listening we will be taking a break for two weeks summer break let's see you in two weeks goodbye if you like the show please share it with your friends and subscribe wherever you get your podcasts you can also help us by supporting us on Patreon for as little as €4 Euro a month. Visit patreon.com slash misinformed. For links to all our sources and for our personal tips on what to watch and read, subscribe to our weekly newsletter at misinformed.substack.com. You can follow us on Instagram at the underscore miss underscore informed or email us your feedback, requests, or just to say hi misinformed.podcast at gmail.com. We would love to hear from you.